For that, we want to turn to the book of Psalms. So somewhere in the middle of your Bible, after quite a while in John, we are now back in the Old Testament, and uh, we'll start a new series here this morning. Psalm chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now Lord, would you give us alert ears, active and awake minds, hearts hungry to hear and digest and take in and be transformed by your truth, Lord, don't let a single person who is old enough to hear with understanding miss what You would say through Your Word, but let it benefit our souls now and into eternity as we give ear to You. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Psalm 1 has been called the doorkeeper psalm because it is really meant to be an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. Book of Psalms. Yeah, Psalms, Songs. I'll probably do that a lot. Because here we're told that we may know the blessing of fellowship with God. Blessed is the man, the person, the believer, who enters through this door to draw near to the presence of God. And so as we begin this new series this morning, we want what I want to do this morning is... Uh, kind of look at an overview of Psalm itself, uh, introduce you to it, and what are the Psalms, how do they work, and why are they a blessing to the believer who treasures them. And then, over the next few weeks, we'll look at various kinds of Psalms and how it is that they benefit your life as you give your attention to them. So let's begin looking at the Psalms themselves, the Psalms and the blessing of daily fellowship with God they can provide because that's really what they are here to bring. The Psalms are the worship hymnal of Israel. And really, for 1,800 years, they were the main worship hymnal of the church as well. They are songs and poetry written for the purpose of instructing you and bringing you into the presence of God. You know, as such, they're, they're not really here to be studied in a kind of academic way, the way we might do one of Paul's epistles. They are really meant to be experienced. The Psalms are full of life and full of God. They're given to bring you into a, a personal experience of the presence of God. They are, as one man called them, a kind of sanctuary in words where believers can come and meet with God. Are you hungry for the presence of God? Do you seek His presence? Do you want to be near Him? Well, dear one, this, this is a place where you can come 
to find Him. When my heart is cold and stale and I need to be warmed by the fire of His presence, I often find it here in the sanctuary of the Psalms. Uh, When I I need to pray, but I can't even find the words that I need, I, I come into the sanctuary of the Psalms and very often I find them here. When my soul is troubled and worn and I I can't worship, I feel dead toward God, I will often find renewal and help by entering into the sanctuary of the Psalms. If it sounds like I'm trying to get you to embrace the Psalms as a daily part of your life, well, I am. right? Because here is where the believer may learn to relate to God, to cry out to God, to wait upon Him and to find His presence. The Psalms as a book are, is vast. Uh, it is the longest book of the Bible, you know, with some 150 different compositions. Uh, it has the greatest scope of authors. You know, David wrote 73 of the Psalms. There are others written by Moses, Solomon, Asaph, the sons of Korah, and others. It covers the widest um, scope of time. 1,500 years from the days of Moses all the way down to the days of Ezra who apparently has given the Psalms their final form as we find them now. And it includes the greatest scope of styles. Uh, Here we'll find hymns of praise and thanksgiving, cries of sorrow, uh, songs of repentance, celebrations of God's triumphs, pleas for God's justice, uh, words of wisdom, and confessions of trust. And I'd encourage you to look at the pastor's word uh, later this week or this day. And I kind of lay out some of the different types of psalms that we encounter there. But as you begin to meditate on these psalms, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, you find that they are very personal in nature. As opposed to one of the historical books like Joshua or Samuel or Kings where really you're reading along and it's somebody else's story. Now it's, it's, it's the Word of God. It's beneficial to you. You can learn much about God from it. But, it. but it's somebody else's story that you're looking in on. And yet when you enter into the Psalms, you often discover that it is in fact your story. Uh, the Psalm that you're reading may have been written by David or Asaph or someone, but the reality that it it expresses finds an echo in your own soul. Anybody here able to testify to that? There is, in fact, not an emotion that you've ever felt, not a struggle that you've ever faced that is not somewhere dealt with within the pages of the Psalms. They are, indeed, a treasure. John Calvin said that they are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Meaning, that as you read them, they read you. And and they help you uh, express the struggles of your own mind. They help you give voice to the pains of your own soul. They, They can help you interpret the emotions that clog your heart and teach you how to express those things back to God. Again, Calvin has written, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn into life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are so often agitated. As we read the Psalms, we learn about God and His care for us. We learn about ourselves as well. 
We understand our situation better because the whole gamut of human experience is expressed within the Psalter. David Hubbard said this, he said, The Psalms speak to all seasons of our souls. And so as your pastor, I want you living in the Psalms if you're not, because I believe for many of you that will help you more than almost anything short of when you first come to Christ that I could press upon you. In fact, the Apostle Paul clearly thought this as well. Twice in the New Testament, uh, Paul commands us as God's people to use the Psalms. Do you remember Ephesians 5.19, for example? Or let me just read Colossians 3.16. Paul says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. Singing psalms. The psalms are here to help you find the presence of God and then learn how to express your soul back to Him. The psalms give us prayers that we can pray, songs that we can sing, laments that we can cry. They teach us how to express both our joys and our sorrows. They help us navigate times of elation as well as those times of depression. Whatever you are going through, there is help to be found in the sanctuary of the Psalms. That brings us back to these opening words, not only of Psalm 1, but of the entire Psalter. Blessed is the man. The person, it means. The believer. Do you see that there is actually a blessing being promised to you here? What is that blessing? The word in Hebrew is Ashrei, so not Baruch. Some of you know a little Hebrew, know that blessing, as spoken blessing, is the word Baruch. But this is not Baruch, this is uh, Ashrei, which really points to something else. It really points to a, a well-situated life in the presence of God, in a, in a position to receive from God. And so it means that you are in the right place to experience the fullness God promises of His grace and of His kindness. Uh, it can even be translated as, as happy or joyful, uh, not in the sense of mere emotion, but meaning that you are in the right place with God. That you are in a good position to experience the fullness of His blessing as you turn to Him. In fact, the Greek version of this word ashrei is the word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, Makurios, when He begins to talk about the place of blessing uh, there in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're blessed even though they are troubled because they're receiving the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. They're blessed in their mourning. Why? Because they're being comforted. God is coming to them. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so it's the same blessing. It's the blessing of being satisfied with God, of knowing Him, of of living daily in His presence. So we might even say, happy in God is the one. Um, to, to have your life wrapped up in His life for your good. That's the promise of this psalm. There, there's a blessing to be had, and this is an invitation to you to come and take hold of that blessing through faith. Not because you deserve it. 
not because you've earned it. This is not something that you earn, but because it comes through the gift of His presence. Psalm 32, verse 1, in fact, using the same word, says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So this is the blessing of God that comes by grace through faith. God, through Christ, declares sinners righteous when by faith they put their trust in Him. Amen? We just celebrated that. God, by grace, declares the sinner righteous. Our sins are forgiven. A new life begins. And what is that life? It is this blessed life the psalmist is talking about. And so the psalm pictures the wisdom of that life in Christ, contrasting it with the life of those outside of Christ who are still in their sins. So that's what we want to turn and look at now. This this first psalm... Not only is it an introductory psalm, a doorkeeper psalm, but it, but it really is a wisdom psalm, showing us what this new life looks like as we put it into practice. And so turning to Psalm 1, first thing I want you to see is the blessing that flows from a life that is centered on God and His Word. Let's read those first two verses again. Blessed is the man. Which man? The one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So the walk with God that we have enjoying this blessing, in that walk there is sin to be avoided, and there is truth to be embraced. Do you see that? First, to live in this blessing, you must be one, and this is someone who belongs to Christ, this is what they will be like, you must reject the sinful path of the wicked. Again, verse 1. Blessed is the man, which man? The one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's a warning, isn't it? This is a warning about the progressive decline that comes when a professed believer or really anyone else turns from a life of devotion to God to pursue a life in step with those who reject God. We could even call this the the path of deconversion, the path of turning away from faith into unbelief. Notice, in fact, the downward steps that lead this person away from God. First, To walk in the counsel of the wicked means to follow their advice, to turn from God to them for counsel. Now, the wicked here doesn't mean exceptionally bad people. He doesn't mean the rapists and murderers out there. Here, wicked simply means unbelieving people, people who are in a state of being under the justice and judgment of God, people who don't have God at the center of their lives. They're not believing Him. So their advice is not centered on God, but on man apart from God. And any worldview that begins without God, where God is not at the center, where God's Word is not central to shaping how you think about ethics or politics or how to live, that view will by definition lead you astray. Because you're beginning without the biggest piece. It's like a puzzle with no edge and no center. And nothing to anchor it, and no picture for that matter. You're you're missing the most important part. 
And, and so the person who wants to walk with God through life cannot go to the godless world to learn that walk. Second, to stand in the way of sinners takes you deeper as you identify with those who disregard God. Uh, you're standing with them morally. You're defending their lifestyle, their way. You're adopting their views that are contrary to God. Sinner here means one whose life contradicts God's Word. Right? You, you've moved now from merely taking their advice to adopting and defending their sin. Whether we're talking LGBTQ sin uh, on the one hand or white supremacist sin on the other hand, uh, whatever sin you find yourself defending, uh, you are moving into a stance that stands against God and His ways. Third, to sit in the seat of scoffers then means you've settled down and become at home with those who revile God. A scoffer is someone who has moved beyond the mere passive unbelief into an active rejection of God and His ways, reviling Him, mocking His people. How many have we seen walk that path? Turning away from God to the world for advice, then adopting the world's views over and above God's Word, and finally taking their stand against God and His truth. I only have to mention names like Josh Harris or Derek Webb, former lead singer for Cademan's Call, uh, to sadly make the point. Uh, we live in a time of the clash of worldviews between a life that is centered on God and shaped by His presence and one that is lived in opposition to Him. The psalmist tells us that the path of blessing leads to consciously rejecting the life that is opposed to God. Seeing that life and saying, no, that's not the path I'm going to tread. That's not the direction I'm going to go. Well, how do I do that? How do I do that? That's the second thing. I do that by actively pursuing a life that is centered on God and His Word. And so... Negatively, we'd say, I don't walk with them. Positively, we would say, I do set my hope upon God and His Word. And so we'd say the path to living in this blessing God gives begins by delighting in God's Word. Look at verse 2. But, in contrast, the righteous man's delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord. Here in the Psalms, law of the Lord often is talking about the whole of God's revelation. His Torah, his, his, his place where He has spoken to us. So not just the law of Moses with all of its commands, but the, the whole thing, all of God's instruction to us for our good. And what does he say is the blessed person's attitude toward God's law? What's the attitude of the blessed person to God's law? Read it for me. What's he do? He delights. Yeah, come on, stay with me. Let's go. This is good stuff. He delights in it. He doesn't just like it. He loves it. He cherishes it. He says in the words of Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Is that your attitude 
toward God's Word? Do, do you love it? Not, not just do you read it because someone said you have to and legalistically you're going to do that, but, but there is in your heart a desire for it, a delight in it. Do, do you hunger for it? Because you, you want to know God. And understand, if that is not your attitude toward it, well, really it is an attitude problem. It's not a technique problem. It's not that you need to find a new plan. It's that you need a change of mind and heart toward God and His Word. Um, you need to go to Him, in fact, and ask in the words of Psalm 119.37, um, Lord, incline my heart to Your testimonies. Bend my desires to You and to Your Word. Help me to want to want it. Give me a heart for Your Word. Make me hunger and thirst for it like David did. Psalm 19, verse 10. Oh, uh, uh, more to be desired are Your words than gold, even much fine gold. I want Your Word more than I want money. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Better than the greatest dessert, the biggest and best ice cream or whatever it is that you know excites your palate. I want your word more than I want these things. That's, that's the attitude of the blessed man toward God's word. He hungers for it. And because he hungers for it, notice this attitude leads to an action of the second part of the verse. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And what does he do? He meditates on it day and night. He meditates. And so we access the life-giving benefit and sweetness of God's word. How? By Meditating on it. Now, that may not mean what you think it does. Uh, in Eastern religions like Buddhism, meditation means emptying the mind. You know, some nonsense phrase and emptying the mind of content. Uh, this is not that. Uh, here, meditation means filling the mind and the mouth with the truth of God's Word. In fact, this word meditate in Hebrew literally means to mutter to moan, to utter words under your breath. It can even mean to growl like a lion or coo like a dove. But, but whatever it is, it's audible. It's not just thinking to yourself, though it includes it. It is preaching to yourself. It's rehearsing to yourself. It's saying to yourself over and over under your breath until these words permeate your mind and shape your life. Good example is Joshua 1.8 when Joshua is giving leadership of Israel and he's told, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate, same word, moan it, uh, utter it, day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. Do you understand? That which shapes the mind is what will set the course of your life. Again, this is why we can't let our minds be shaped by the world even passively. We have to be conscious and active in shaping our minds around God and His Word. Paul says this clearly. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. By the way, notice how that is verse 1 here. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that is verse 2 here. How are you doing that? How are you renewing your mind so that it is shaped by the presence and the power of God? Well, this, this psalm gives an answer to that question. Mutter it to yourself. <laughs> Say it over and over. Read it. 
memorize it, mull over it in your mind, roll it around on your tongue. Right? You read a passage in the morning and you, you put it on your phone, or if you're old school, you put it on a post-it note, and you mull it over. You think about it. When you see it, um, you, you say it, and maybe you even learn to sing it to yourself, and you, you're seeking to savor it like you would a nice hard piece of candy that you, you want to enjoy as much as you can. I've known of families even making posters with their kids and putting them all over the house and saying, well, it may not be the decoration that you know uh, Better Homes and Gardens prefers, but I've got the Word everywhere here where we're seeing it, we're thinking about it, we're proclaiming it. How often do we do this? What's he say? Day and night. Which means what? Every chance you get. All the time. Uh, Carry the Psalms with you, for example, or other portions of Scripture. Read them daily. Keep a record of what you've read so that you're in it regularly. Uh, Work your way through it. There's lots of ways to do this. You know, if you're not doing it right now, begin with a psalm every morning. Just start there. Or a portion of a psalm. Some of them are quite long. Like we did Psalm 119 back at the beginning of this year, where you simply you read it, you think about it. Uh, PJ and I were talking about a method yesterday where you do it based on the day of the week. You don't know what that means? Come talk to me. Talk to PJ. He'll tell you about it. But there's lots of ways to do this where you, you read the words, you meditate on it, you pray it back to God, you let Him show you something there, you ask Him to show you what you need, and then you carry that with you throughout the day, thinking about it, muttering it. Because, look at the result in verse 3, He, the one doing this, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that He does, He prospers. The one whose life is so anchored in God's life-giving Word is like a tree planted by God in a well-watered place. I mean, just think of that picture. First of all, it is a picture of stability. Under God's care. Uh, He is planted. This word planted pictures a tree that is cultivated. This a tree that is being cared for and tended by the holy gardener who assures its fruitfulness. Jeremiah 17.7 uses this same imagery. I suspect Jeremiah had a copy of the Psalms himself. It says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the streams and it does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. So it's a picture of fruitfulness in life. Those who walk with God in His Word will continue to bear good fruit. Uh, John 15.5, Jesus said that, I'm the vine, you're the branches, whoever abides in Me, and elsewhere He says, and His Word, My Word abides in Him, He is like the one who bears much fruit. For apart from Me you can do nothing. So there's fruit. Second, there is longevity. Their leaf does not wither. They stay fresh and green. Why? Because no matter how bad the drought is out there, the living water of His Word keeps you fresh and alive. Overall, it's a picture of spiritual flourishing in life, a richness of life because of the presence of God mediated to you through His Word, His Word taken in and dwelt upon. I mean, that's the life. I love the picture in Psalm 92, verse 12. It says, 
The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. I want to be like that. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. That's the blessing of the man or woman whose life is centered on God with the regular intake of His Word. There is life. There is fruitfulness. There is resistance against the withering winds of drought that are ravaging our culture. That's the life that is being offered to you as you set your course to walk with God daily in His Word. You you live upon His Word. You let it have its blessed effect of filling your life with His presence. That's the life I want to see you, every person of this church, cultivating because it's good and because the alternative is so terrible. brings us to this, and that is... The backside, the flip side, the curse of the life that is lived in opposition to God. The curse of the life of those who refuse God's Word. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. They're not like that green tree, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Church, these are solemn words. These are, these are words of warning. These are words of contrast. After describing in such beautiful terms the situation of the righteous who walk with God, you know, they are well watered, they're full of fruit, they're green and full of life because they're so full of God. After getting that picture, verse 4 then falls like an axe blow. The wicked are not so. They are not like that. They are not full of life. They are dead like chaff. You know what chaff is, right? Chaff is that dead, dried up outer husk of the wheat that has no food value. In those days when the harvest was over, they would winnow the dried wheat. They would take a winnowing fork. Maybe you've seen pictures of this. On a windy day, they would toss the wheat up in the air and then the chaff would come off and just blow away. A lifeless husk. That's the picture of the ungodly life. The life lived apart from God. It's not green, it's brown. It's not alive, it's dead. It's not fruitful, it's wasted. And in the end, it has no purpose other than to be burned. John the Baptist said that very clearly. Matthew 3, verse 12, he said, speaking of Christ, His winnowing fork is in His hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. What an awful contrast between the life and fruitfulness of the righteous whose lives are centered on God and shaped by His Word and the weightless loss of of the wicked. And again, wicked means the unbeliever. The person, the man, the woman who is cut off from God and stands guilty under His judgment as we all once did. And one of the things about the poetry of the Psalms and other parts of the Bible, but especially of the Psalms, is that it is meant to really provoke you to think. 
to see the image. You know, that green, well-watered tree flourishing where God plants it full of luscious fruit as opposed to the dead, dried-up husk being tossed into the fire. We're meant to see those images and think, O Lord, which am I? Which path is my life taking? Am I the blessed man, the blessed woman who has turned away from the world's foolishness and sin to delight in Your Word, to grow in the life-giving truth of Your presence? Or Or am I on that path that leads away from God into eternal judgment? Proverbs 16.25 warns, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. And make no mistake, that's what we're talking about here, life and death. Look at verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And so there's a twofold eternal loss being depicted here for those who do not make the Lord their trust. For those who spurn His Word and insist on going their own way, first, He says, they will be swept away in judgment. They will not stand on that day. And again, it's keeping with the image of chaff. The wind of God's judgment will blow them away. It is a picture of utter loss and ruin at the final judgment. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Jesus said. They will not stand in the judgment. And second, they will be shut out from the eternal fellowship of God's people. second half of verse 5 is actually just as terrible as the first. Nor will sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. They won't be there. This too is judgment. Sinners will not enter the life God has prepared for His redeemed people. Do you remember? Do you remember how Jesus told us in John 14 that He was going to prepare a place for us? He said, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and, and, and will take you to Myself that where I am, you also may be. Those who love the Lord, those who long for His appearing, will be satisfied forever in His presence. That is the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He will come and we will see Him as He is and He will take us home and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the reward of those who are counted righteous by faith in Christ. Revelation 21.4 says, There He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have all passed away. That is the destiny of the righteous in Christ. That's what awaits all who walk with Him. But, not so the wicked. The psalmist tells us that they will be shut out from that fellowship, cut off from that blessing. Listen, those who do not want God now will not have Him ever. 
Paul warns of that very solemnly in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he adds this, and such were some of you. So here's the hope. Such were some of you, but you were washed by the blood of Christ. You were sanctified by the indwelling Holy Spirit. You were justified by faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So standing side by side, we have hope and hopelessness. Life and death. Heaven and hell. Come by faith in Christ. Enter this life with God at the center, guided and strengthened by His Word daily, and you will have this life in the joyful company of His redeemed forever. But spurn Him. Insist on your own way. Try to fit in with the life of this world without God. And you lose all. For here's the final verse, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Again, notice this eternal contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The Lord knows the righteous. Now, here, knows doesn't just mean that He knows about them, that He knows their name, that He has the facts about them. He has the facts about everyone. Here, it speaks of an intimate knowledge. He knows them with love. He knows them personally and tenderly. He has set His affection upon them in eternity. He has chosen them by grace and loved them with an eternal love and is watching over them for their good. He will keep them in faith and keep them for good. But the way of the wicked will perish. It's a word of utter loss. A word of final destruction. Those who continue to live outside the promise of God's blessing have nothing, nothing to look forward to except what Hebrews 10.27 calls a fearful expectation of judgment. And dear one, that is terrifying. But friend, this psalm is calling you to something better. It's calling you to examine your life and turn to Christ to treasure Him, to treasure His truth, to treasure His Word, to to, to, to lay all in His hand, believing the promise of His Word, and then walking in those promises now and into eternity. The Lord knows the way of those who are righteous through faith in Christ, but the way of the wicked out on their own, it will perish. Lord, would You even now enable us to examine ourselves by the mirror of Your Word. Not to look if we think we're good enough or done enough or been enough, but to look to see, am I trusting in Christ alone? And by trusting in Christ, do I love Him? Because I love Him, I love His Word. Not perfectly yet. I stumble, I fall, but I do love it. I do want it. I want Him. I want Him to redeem me. 
I want Him to save me. And walking with Him now, I want to continue in that. I want to know His truth. I want to know His love. I want to know greater depths of fellowship. I want to enter into the sanctuary of the Psalms and the other portions of God's Word and have that Word fill my mind and my heart, uh, transforming me by the renewing of my mind that I might live to His glory and, and know Him and know His presence and know the joy of His holiness and know the reality of fellowship with the saints that begins here and now through His called out church and then we'll carry on to that place of great reunion forever and ever in His presence. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. God, give that faith. Give that walk. Give that confidence that comes through Christ. We ask in Your name. Amen.